Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I write about agency, love, happiness, and virtue. You can learn more about me and my research on my website, jenniferannfrey.com. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter at Jen Frey, or on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also now follow the podcast on Twitter. We are at Pod. In today's episode, titled Carrying the Flame, I speak with my friend, Father Gregory Pine, about the necessity of the virtue of hope and its connection to love in Cormac McCarthy's post-apocalyptic novel, The Road. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So today on the podcast, I am very pleased and happy to welcome my friend, Father Gregory Pine, OP from the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Father Gregory. Hey, thanks so much. Delighted to be on. Yeah, so we had been talking about getting you on the podcast because you are a literature geek like me. Mm. And so I knew that I wanted to have you on. And I can't remember how we settled on Cormac McCarthy. Probably I pushed it on you. But um, we're going to be talking today about Cormac McCarthy. So why don't we start with the obvious Who's Cormac McCarthy? So Cormac McCarthy is a novelist, um, which I suppose is obvious on account of the fact that you uh, introduced it as such. Um, I think the things that people would be most familiar with are No Country for Old Men, which was made famous by the Coen Brothers adaptation. And then The Road, also made famous by a film version. I think uh, a couple other is novels. Have you seen the movies? I have not. Well, I've seen No Country. I haven't seen um, The Road. Yeah, I haven't seen The Road either. Of course, it's the Khan Brothers, so No Country for Old Men is, is an amazing film. It is an amazing film. And I think it's a, well, dot, dot, dot. We can talk about that later. But do you think it's a good adaptation of the novel? I do. And I think that, okay, so this is a, an interpretation taken from Father Gabriel Toretta, who's a Dominican of my province. I think that the way that they reinterpret free choice actually deepens some of the themes of the novel. So I think the fact that at the end, um, so Llewellyn's wife uh, is posed with the option of flipping the coin by Anton Chigar. And in the book, I think she does flip the coin. And then in the movie, she does not flip the coin. Mm-hmm. And I think that part, I mean, like, I think part of the novel, part of the purpose of the novel is to expose the nature of like human liberty and all of its starkness. And I think that that scene does it best uh, because you have a lot of, you know, you have a lot of themes in the movie or in the book about determinism or fatalism or the fact that you're kind of up against these forces um, against which you can really do nothing. But, Mm -hmm. but right there in her choice not to choose according to the manner of his proposing, I think that shows her to be most free in a way that's really cool and beautiful. And she ends up, you know, dying, spoiler alert. Um, but still we see uh, human choice and all of its grandeur as something constitutive of dignity. So yes, that's a long way of saying that I think their adaptation of it is both faithful and even more faithful to the truth than, uh, than the McCarthy novel may in fact be. Interesting. So if No Country for Old Men is about 
free choice. What's the road about? Mm. We still haven't really said who Cormac McCarthy is. I'm sorry, because I interrupted you. <laughs> Let's go back. Uh, yeah, I mean, we said everything that needs to be said. He's a novelist, and um, he's written maybe like 10, 11, 12, 13, something like that. A, a handful of books, novels, and then a couple of screenplays or, you know, kind of like two-man plays, as it were. Uh, the ones that are most famous, basically everything since Blood Meridian, people read. So Blood Meridian, No Country, The Road, The Border Trilogy, so All the Pretty Horses, The Crossing, Cities of the Plain, and then Sunset Limited, which is actually also made into a film featuring, I think, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson, which is nice and short. That's a good place to start if you're looking for a place to start. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a few books before that, then all the names of which I've forgotten, but it's like right. Orchard Keeper and Sutri and like Child of God or something like that. There's maybe like four. And then a couple other random screenplays that uh, yeah, most people don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. So he's so, won a lot of prizes. Like he won the Pulitzer for the road. He did. And then um, I want to say for all the pretty horses, it was one of the finalists for the National Book Award. So he's, yeah, he's he's a dude. As far as contemporary novelists go, he's one of the best. So why do you like him? So part of the reason that I like him is because he's very even handed. Um, and I think that he has a kind of capacity to portray human things in all of their starkness and in all of their grandeur. And he strips away a lot of the um, the contingency or like the non-necessaries for his exposition in a way that kind of throws you up against what it means to be a human person uh, in a way that's very bracing, but also very beautiful. And I don't get the impression that he himself is a believer or if he is of a kind of Gnostic stripe, but um, he doesn't close off the question of transcendence. He actually affords you this really rich entree into questions of meaning or purpose or freedom, grace, hope, things like that. Um, and he he's able to construct his scenes in such a way that the ultimate meaning of them is ambivalent in a way that affords you um, real like liberty of interpretation. Not that you just construct the meaning yourself, but I think that like maybe people have had this experience with reading other novels. When I read John Steinbeck, for instance, when I read The Grapes of Wrath, I was like, that, bo- that book is false because it closes the question about transcendence it just says like man pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and he's kind of destined to an eternity of such but then you read east of eden and then it all hinges on the ambivalence of you know free choice and tim shell and things like that and while he doesn't offer a definitive judgment in a way that's like overly didactic or question closing he affords you as the reader the opportunity to have your own humanity kind of deepened and transfigured in that exchange and i think that i think that cormac mccarthy does that very beautifully and very excellently did you know that I have an episode on Steinbeck? I did not know that you have an episode on Steinbeck. I do, and it's with Michael Sherwin. Oh, no way. And, yeah, and um, it's really somehow he reads all of these um, Thomistic and Augustinian views about love into Steinbeck. It's, it's really amazing. I should obviously listen. Okay. You mentioned that Cormac McCarthy has this very bare, uh, stripped down kind of prose. And and that's especially true in the road. Yeah. And I think that is on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so often in the road, like, I don't think you'll find a single semicolon in the road. Like that's mm. way, too, <laughs> way too much, but often you don't even find proper punctuation. So often contractions won't have an apostrophe, for example, sure. things like this. And um, so I, I think that's intentional. And maybe in order to explain that, we should talk about what the road is about. The road is a post-apocalyptic nightmare, effectively, in as much as it's so 
it's post societal, um, it's post cultural, it's kind of post everything. You get the impression from what you read that there's been some great cataclysm that involves fire. So it seems that the whole world, practically speaking, has been consumed in a great conflagration. And that in the wake of that, a lot of resources were scarce and people started, you know, cobbling together whatever remained of a coherent life. And then, you know, crime uh, reached a kind of terrifying zenith and cannibalism became uh, a solution for a lot of the problems. And then you just kind of like have the world divided into two camps, the people who eat people and the people who try not to get eaten. And it's kind of scary. Uh, and all like in, at every turning in the road, you find evidence of this cataclysm and then evidence of the terror that has been wrought in its wake. And so you're effectively just following two characters uh, who are not named as further evidence of um, yeah, the post-apocalyptic destabilization and depersonalization of culture. And yeah, the man and the boy. Exactly. Yeah. So it seems that it's a father and his son. The son consistently refers to his father as Papa, but um, the man never really refers to his son by name or by anything really. He doesn't even have pet names or there aren't even nicknames. There's nothing. It's just, it's there really- are no There are no names in the road. There are no names in the road. Uh, and so the story is of them making their way somewhere, uh, kind of an ill-defined safe haven uh, for which they hope, but never really manifests itself. So they're kind of working their way south because winter is coming. They're working their way to the coast because it's more navigable than the mountains and the forests. Um, but all the while, they're trying to work their way without being detected by other you know, malign folks along the way. So there's a, a kind of general sense of trajectory and it's purposeful. It's not aimless, but you get the you get the impression that it's kind of ill-defined. Um, there's no clear utopia. There's no clear safe haven. There's no clear safe house. It's just they're moving because were they to stop moving, they would die. And um, yeah, it's that's the basic shape. Right, and the landscape is incredibly bleak. So. Um, you mentioned that there was some, some kind of event. We're never told. And I think it's important that we're never told what happened. It just remains a mystery. Something bad happened. And part of it had to do with a fire because there are all of these charred remains. But basically, the entire Earth, as we know of it from the perspective of the characters, has been reduced to ash. And the sun is mostly blocked from the ash, like things don't grow anymore, which is why cannibalism is such a problem. As far as we can tell, there are very few people left in the world. So even though these um, two men are on the road, like you, you hardly ever encounter other people on the road and, but you also sort of live in terror that you might, right? So it's a weird kind of mix. It's almost like you want to encounter other people, but you're also like terrified that you'll encounter other people because as you said, like there are two kinds of people, the people who eat and then there are the people who get eaten. And so they're living in this space of terror and, and yeah, so you have, you have the man and the boy and it's a father and a son. Um, but there's a, there's like a few characters off stage because like the previous world we is talked about mostly from the perspective of the father 
because the son was never was not born into that world. So the son is born into the post-apocalyptic world. But one of the other characters is the wife. So maybe we should say something about her. She does really factor in this novel, I think. Sure. So, yeah, at an early point, you are introduced to her character as a way of peppering in the backstory and kind of coloring the details of the present. And um, she is a kind of type of despair in the sense that um, she does not think that after the cataclysm that this life is worth living. Uh, And we're told, you know, at a relatively early point that she exits by taking her own life. So she does not fall prey to historical accident or happenstance. She rather kind of seizes control of the situation in her own way and uh, exits on her own terms. And so she, we hear recounted some kind of tidbits from her conversation with the husband and Papa. And he's making, he's trying to make an argument or trying to kind of sell the case as to why they should push on, why they should continue, why they should, you know, hope for their son and for a, a brighter future, even though, um, you know, like the earth is in its half-life and it only really has a downward spiral to a spiral to kind of consummate what remains. Um, but she is constantly making arguments to the contrary um, and doing so very vehemently in a way that's it's terrible. So again, here's like one of these classic examples where the starkness of the story and the starkness of the prose throw you up against um, your own presuppositions, whether they are just kind of unexamined or strongly held, um, whether they are reasonable or perhaps not. And you have to kind of grapple with like, what is it that I hope for? Or what is it that I hope to gain from my experience of life or potentially from a life beyond, even if it be ill-defined? So yeah, that's not just to say that she's a type or a trope um, or a kind of offstage figure in a morality play, but she has the effect of kind of putting it to you. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely the figure. I mean, she makes the case for despair. Right. So if we look at the the passage where he's remembering the final conversation that he has with her the day that she kills herself, this is what she says to her husband, the boy's father. She says, we're not survivors. We're the walking dead in a horror film. And then she tells him, I don't care if you cry. It doesn't mean anything to me. And she tells him straightforwardly, I can't help you. They say that women dream of danger to those in their care and men of danger to themselves, but I don't dream at all. You say you can't, then don't do it. That's all. Because I am done with my own whorish heart and I have been for a long time. You talk about taking a stand, but there is no stand to take. My heart was ripped out of me the night he was born. So don't ask for sorrow now. There is none. And she walks away. And he knows that that's it. And what's interesting about the scene is that the boy knows it too. I mean, he's not there, but when his mother never comes back, he just sort of says, she's gone, isn't she? And the father says, yes, she's gone. And they keep going down the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this scene is like early on in the novel. It's really dark, but I think it sets the scene in an important way because what she says, I mean, like her perspective is I see the truth and I have the courage to do what's necessary, which is just, so the truth is there is no ground for hope. The truth is that if we keep going, I'm going to get raped. The boy is going to be eaten. Um, 
And so the right thing to do is what she's doing, take her own life. And sort of like the way I read it, but I'm curious what you think, the way I read the novel, it's like the rest of the novel is the question, like, is she right? The way that these this cataclysm like operates as a device is it forces us to ask ourselves, like, what reasons do you have for going on? It's interesting that, so uh, the virtue of hope kind of abides in a quasi uncertainty. And uh, to the right and to the left, uh, one can go wrong, as it were, or one can, you know, sin against hope to use properly Christian language. And on the one side, there's despair. And on the other side, there's a kind of presumption. But what they have in common is that both settle for a fake certainty. So I think that it's just constitutive of human life, that it is uncertain, that there are many things about human life uh, that are not scripted. And if they are scripted, we don't have access to the script. Um, so for us, we have to abide in uncertainty with a kind of confidence in someone or something that will kind of bring us along the way, take us along the road. But with despair, you just close the door on the question and you have a certainty and it's not having um, a good answer. And then with presumption, you also close the door on certainty and you you know kind of end up thinking yourself better than you in fact are as a, like a, a settled state. Um, but this is just like, to be, to be a human being is to be on the way. Um, and like St. Thomas will talk about this when he talks about our coming to perfection. He says, it's, it's true of God that God is his perfection. So he doesn't come to his perfection. It's true of angels. He says that they come to their perfection by one act. But he says, it's true of us that we come to our end. We come to our perfection by many acts. So he'll refer to man as homo viator, you know, like man wayfarer, man on the way. Uh, and we remain and abide as such until such time as we end in heaven or in hell. Um, so, so to be a human being is to be discursive, it's to be narrative, it's to be unfolding, it's to be kind of responsive and reactive. Um, and, and part of being that way is having a life characterized by a kind of uncertainty, um, but learning to live and to move in that in a way that's like virtuous and, you know, prompt and joyful, et cetera. But with effectively what you get with the mother is, is a judgment. And then you get immediately the consequences thereof. It is that there is nothing to be had here or beyond. And so the only just response, the only adequate response is to end it. And you, you find like characters along the way, all of whom want to blot out every human life, not just their own, because if there is no subjective consciousness in which to register the atrocity and the difficulty, the sadness, the trial, then it is as if the thing itself has passed from being. So there's this recognition that like pain and suffering of the kind that they themselves have experienced, like it presumes a subject, it presumes a suffering subject, and they want all of that gone because they can't wrap their head around a reality in which such things are permitted to last. And, and the wife is just a kind of intense example of that. Yeah, it is true that the wife speaks with this kind of clarity and certainty that, you know, the father can't seem to manage. Um, one of the things that I find most beautiful about this novel, I do think it's a beautiful novel, even though this novel makes me want to die and makes me cry like a baby every time I read it. Um, it's a beautiful novel, but one of the most beautiful parts of it are these conversations between the man and the boy. They're very terse conversations. Um, and sometimes, I mean, like if you, like if you look at the dialogue between them, sometimes the man, um, maybe when he has his guard down a little bit more, he's more comfortable with the uncertainty of things. Right. Yeah. 
um, where he'll just be able to say to his son, who's terrified, who's always terrified, his son lives in a state of perpetual terror, in, in large part terror that his father is going to die um, and leave him alone on the road. And um, some, but sometimes the father is like, yeah, I, I don't know, right? Um, and that always seems to be like the honest answer, you know, I don't know, right? I don't know if there's going to be food. I don't know if there's going to be bad guys. I don't know if these are good guys or bad guys, et cetera. I don't know where we're going really or what we're gonna do. Um, but at other times he seems to want to project this kind of certainty. And it seems to always be times when he's worried that his son is sort of psychologically slipping away, right? Mm -hmm. that, that he that he might be given over to despair. And that is what the father, more than the father seems to want to give his son food and shelter and all of these things, though he wants to give them to his son, the thing he's most determined to give his son is hope. Hope that he himself often does not have. Um, and it seems like when he's most desperate to give his son hope, the more willing he is to not be so honest, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there is this tension throughout the novel, which I find so fascinating between seeing things the way that they are and remaining hopeful. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, one of the questions of the novel is, can we remain hopeful when we see the absolute truth of things? So like, there's this one passage, um, which really kills me every time I read it. So this is a scene after they've encountered some bad people and mm -hmm. his and his son is, you know, upset. And this is a scene where his son is sleeping. It's often the case that the son is sleeping, the father's just up, um, mm -hmm. probably trying to protect him. So it says, he walked out in the gray light and stood, and he saw for a brief moment the absolute truth of the world, the cold, relentless circling of the intestate earth, darkness implacable, the blind dogs of the sun in their running, the crushing black vacuum of the universe and somewhere two hunted animals trembling like ground foxes in their cover, borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. So the absolute truth of things is really dark, right? And he's constantly, I think, trying to hide this absolute truth of things uh, from his son, precisely so that he can, you know, keep hope alive in his son. And I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I think that, um, so there's a sense in which the boy sees reality more clearly than his father at times. And I think he sees it precisely because he hopes in a way that is more pure so like St. Thomas will say that um, hope comes most naturally to the young and to the drunk <laughs> uh, because the drunk overestimates his power and the young has all kinds of future before him. So he has not yet had his memory seasoned by disappointments. And that at first to us, it sounds like, well, that's not hope. That's just naivete or like immaturity. Right. But, there's a, but there's a sense in which like hope has a kind of virginal quality to it. 
um, like that we can be better disposed at the beginning of our life to see uh, what is in all of its glory and bridal splendor. And, um, you know, while at times the boy shows himself to be a child, at other times in kind of McCarthy's inimitable sage Gnostic way, he gives vent to a wisdom far beyond his years. Um, and he recognizes things that his father can't see. Like he recognizes things about human agency, for instance, that his father has difficulty recognizing in the heat of passion. So the boy is very generous, for instance, um, and he's continuously generous, uh, even when their stores are limited and were they to be it, perhaps imprudently generous, it might imperil them. But yeah, so I think the father thinks he's generous to a fault. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the boy just has, I think the boy has better interiorized the sense of providence, which is still operative in the world, because by his own admission, the father will say, like, we always end up being lucky. You know, we always find food when it comes time. And mind you, it might be like four days since they've eaten last when they come upon this storehouse. But when they do, it's like you as a reader expect it because you have the sense that there's someone or something looking out for them. And the boy has interiorized the sense and, and trusts in this in a way that's far more thoroughgoing than the father has. And so he's able to be more generous because he has a deepened appreciation of the providence of God, or maybe even simply of his father or of just the universe writ large. Like the boy himself is loath to, to pray, but he speaks of God. Um, and yeah, there's a sense in which, you know, God is kind of operative some way, you know, in a remote way in this very, very broken world. Um, and so like when the father perpetrates uh, an injustice against somebody whom they meet at the end at the coast, it, it really rocks the boy. It really rocks the boy. And he finds it difficult to even speak to his father, not because he's sullen or unforgiving, but because the very words have been robbed from him because the world makes even less sense in light of ill-used human agency. Whereas he himself, while he commits mistakes, we don't ever see him really sin, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I think... That's I think right. He messes it. up a lot, right? He does, yeah. Like, he will forget the gun or he'll leave the stove burning so that they run out of gas and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, but he's consistently, like... It's almost like the boy serves as the man's conscience. Yeah. Um, in so many ways. So when when they... But sometimes, actually, he's the voice of prudence, too. So, um, I mean, we're supposed to think that the man is looking after the boy, and of course he is, but so many times, like, the, the boy is really looking after the man um, yeah. and being like, hey, why don't we not do this incredibly stupid thing, please? <laughs> it's going to go badly. Um, but I take it that you were talking about the thief on the beach that yeah. they meet. So, yeah. right, so they... Um, all of their stuff is stolen. So all of their clothes and all of their food and, and their shelter gets stolen by this lone thief who they eventually catch up with on the road. And, um, and, and the father is, I suppose he thinks he's being just, right? So he does to the thief what the thief did to them. So he strips the thief of everything and leaves him alone to die. Um, and the boy is like tremendously upset by this. Um, and it, and it, it reminds you of other scenes throughout the novel where the boy is the one saying, look, we have to feed this old man, right? We have to look after this little boy. Um, what about, you know, he's, he's the one that is worried about other people, whereas the man 
his sole concern is the boy, right? And he tends to see other people in terms of there being a threat to the boy. Um, unless he's trying to give the boy hope, and then he talks about people, right, as if as if they're going to help him. Um, but I think, you know, it's also interesting that there's only one prayer in the entire novel, and and it's from the boy, right? Should we talk about that? I can think of another prayer, but let's talk about this one. Oh, no, what's the other prayer? I think it's it strikes me as a prayer when the father recognizes that he is going to die and he says, I'm going to die. Tell me how I am to do that. I see that as addressed to God. That's true. There's often these scenes where the man is sort of talking into the abyss. Yeah. Um, and it and it, yeah, I suppose it could be understood as a kind of prayer. Um, but the boy's prayer is much more explicit. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So um, they come into this windfall of food. They're basically poking around a house on the side of the road. And then his father is traversing the backyard and he feels this kind of dead spot in the lawn. Um, It has some give to it. And then he digs it out and he comes to find that there is this whole, you know, underground layer basically that's kitted out with all kinds of things. There's like gas and there are like ammunition and tons of food and blankets and warm clothes. It's just, it's a gold mine. It's incredible. And then at one point the boy asks the father, like, does this belong to somebody else? And the father says, yes. And he says, are they dead? And he says, yes. Um, and so he's like, so we can take it because they're no longer alive. And the father, you know, says yes. And then the boy uh, says a prayer and he says this, <laughs> dear people, thank you for all this food and stuff. We know that you saved it for yourself and if you were here, we wouldn't eat it no matter how hungry we were. And we sorry, we're sorry that you didn't get to eat it. And we hope that you're safe in heaven with God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems to be the most um, explicitly religious invocation of God. Although now that I say that, I'm actually thinking of a place early in the novel when he tells the boy that he was appointed by God to care for him. Sure, Do you remember yeah. that scene? I, I vaguely remember that scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He does say, and this is soon after the scene um, where his wife kills himself, he tells the boy that he was appointed by God to care for him. Yeah. And there's interesting, I mean, throughout the novel, there's um, interesting religious language of pilgrims and litanies and tabernacles. You know, it's like God is, He's sort of there and he's not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's he, he like shows up in various moments. I mean, it may just be part of the uncertainty yeah. that they're dealing with is uncertainty about God. I think that he's meant he's meant to enter into the conversation somewhat obliquely. Like even in that prayer, the prayer is addressed to the people who left them the stores. Um, and then he wishes that they might be safe in heaven with God. So it's not actually addressed to God. God doesn't so much enter into the conversation as a person, um, but that at each instance, um, you know, the text or the conversation or the the line itself is ambivalent in such a way that it affords you the opportunity to read it in just that way, not as a a fruit of creative invention, but I think as a legitimate interpretation, I, I think that it's meant purposefully not to close the door on God. Um, and so like, it says at the end, you know, when, well, spoiler alert, maybe I shouldn't talk about this, but he encounters a woman at the end who tries to teach him to pray. And he doesn't feel so much comfortable addressing God as he does addressing uh, his father. 
um, who had told him before he died that he would always be there for him. Um, so there's this sense where hope is presented in a kind of imminent mode, but it's in, it's done in such a way that it affords you the opportunity to see its transcendent kind of resonance, which I think is just a very honest way of doing things. Because I think for McCarthy, the question is still an open one. It's not closed, but I don't think he's made a decided judgment uh, of like a secular humanist type. So um, yeah, no, I think, I mean, God is, God is present in a variety of ways. I mentioned that like the notion of providence, um, but also this fact of like that, that, that there is a kind of salvation to be found in integrity. Like we talked about how the the father himself prays in order that he might die well. And also like, I think the son just recognizes that, that he too is going to die. That's betrayed at some point uh, in their conversation. Um, and every time like the father seems to say that it's all on me and I have to do this, the son comes back and says like, no, it's also on me too. I'm thinking of one exchange where, um, the father says something like, I have to worry about this. Like, you don't have to worry about this. And then the son says something to the effect of like, yes, I do. Like, it, it does it does depend on me. Here, let me, let me track down that text right now. He says, you're not the one who has to worry about everything. This is the father. And then the son responds, yes, I am. He said, I am the one. Um, so the son has, he has a more, I think, a, a better understanding of the fact that he too will die, um, that they all will die. Uh, but that the salvation that he hopes to enjoy is a salvation of, like generosity or integrity or moral probity, call it what you want, but he wants to love people um, because he knows that they're lovable and he sees that. Um, and that's the kind of thing where like God has a toehold in that reality in a way that the kind of urgent, frantic, um, I don't know, efforts at prolonging existence without any clear purpose, I don't think are as open to a transcendent read. So I think, yeah, the sun really affords us um, an entree or, uh, some kind of like meeting point for for the transcendent. The novel is fundamentally about two things and they have to be related. So one is like, what's the point? What meaning is there to any of it? Um, and the second one is about love. It's a novel about love. Um, in particular, the love of a, of a man for his son. Um, and the love in this novel is incredibly sacrificial. Um, and and it, and it's really beautiful, but I I sort of wonder how love and meaning and hope are related. It sort of seems like you can't have hope without love, and it also seems like you can't really have hope unless you can find you can make some sense of the future. And I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering if you see these things as related. Yeah, no. So, um, I mean, I'm just thinking like the way that St. Thomas would describe it in a, like a basic sense as a passion and the way that he would describe it in a more exalted sense as a virtue. So love just being the recognition of something that's fitting, right? So it's just that most basic movement towards something that is good. And then hope being the desire to pursue that thing when it's difficult, but possible, you know, a future arduous good. Uh, and then when you think about love and hope in the theological register, hope is a kind of confidence or a kind of trust that God will come through on his promises because he's omnipotent and because he's merciful. And what he says kind of in general actually applies to me because his love is personal. His love is particular. Um, and then charity being like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's theological culture. It's uh, to love God with his own love and to love one's neighbor with the same. 
So I think you see you see elements of both, like kind of love and hope as passion and love and hope as as virtue. Uh, obviously, without their full kind of Christian dimensions. Uh, not to say that that's a liability of the novel. It's just to say that it's asking different questions. Um, so the the fundamental thing, the, the fundamental question is whether or not any of this is coherent if you don't have a concrete end, um, if you don't have a well-developed sense of what lies in store, does anything on the way actually make sense? Right, and if you're on the road and you're not sure where you're going. Yeah, then then like what's the point of all of it? And then we come back to, you know, the critique of the mother, maybe, maybe perhaps she is more sane on account of the fact that there is no clear, well-defined end. Um, and here, just to kind of like consult one's Christian experience, uh, you know, like in a certain sense, while the Lord does testify to us of heaven, of Trinitarian communion, of friendship in such a way that, that it affords us, um, yeah, it affords us at least an image of or a foretaste of what lies in store. We're putting a lot of our eggs in an ill-defined basket. If you subject that, I mean, if you subject that to the scrutiny of kind of like rational probity, um, we just, and this is the reason why a lot of people along the way have said that it's just the opiate of the masses or it's a kind of mass wish. Uh, it's, it's so much silliness and it actually robs um, people of their desire to transform the present or to work towards uh, like modest, albeit this worldly goals, because they've, they've just like invested everything in the future. So um, so meaning in the text, I think that like um, a classic temptation is to think of it as something extrinsic or to think of it as something um, about like accomplishment or achievement or the accumulation of material goods, be it like wealth, fame, honor, glory, blah, blah, blah. But I think that like the son's insight is that love is both the way and the end. And in recognizing that he has scope for real hope. And I mean, I don't mean just for this to be like the apotheosis of the son, because the, the father understands this. And I'm not saying like the father is just dopey and misunderstands everything. I think both of them have a sense of this because they realize that love is both the end and the way and love that they would just express it as their fidelity to each other. Like you mentioned, like their capacity to tell each other, each other the truth, their ability to keep promises. Like one of the reasons that you know that the man whom the boy encounters at the end is trustworthy is because he does what he says he will. He says, I'll wrap your father in a blanket. And then the boy goes back to say goodbye to his father and he finds him wrapped in a blanket. So he knows that the man, you know, to whom he has entrusted himself is good because he keeps his promises. Whereas everyone else whom they've met along the way dissimulates and deceives and lies and cheats and blah, blah, blah. But he knows that this man is trustworthy. He is worthy of his hope, of investing his hope precisely because he loves, because love is the goal and love is the way to the goal. I suppose I have questions about what the virtue sense of love and hope is um, where they aren't theological virtues. Sure. So like with respect to love, for instance, love, you know, to will the good of the beloved um, same time, you know, he talks about amor in the sense of passion and he talks about caritas in the sense of, you know, charity, but in between he talks about a kind of rational love, which does not yet have a theological um, content. And he refers to it as dilexio. And it's basically described as, you know, willing the good of the other. It's friendship, right? Willing the good of the other. It's If it's reciprocated, it's friendship. Yeah. And if there's a common life. But um, so, yeah, he'll talk about like, and you know this stuff better than I do. So I'll just give an introductory thing and then ask your thoughts. Um, but like in each act of love, there's this twofold movement, one with respect to the good and then with respect to the other person. So you have love of concupiscence with respect to the good and then love of friendship with respect to the person. So it's effectively a willing of a good to another and in its highest realization, 
that good is shared and it forms a common vision and a common pursuit. Um, and it's the type of the thing which dissolves considerations of altruism and selfishness because it's about the good. So when you think about the exchanges between father and son, like the father does this kind of false altruism where he'll give the son more food, but then the son forces him to eat his share because he knows that their good is intertwined in such a way that if the father neglects his own health, it actually represents an evil for both of them. So while it seem, might seem subjectively satisfying to the sacrificial father to give the son more food, the son recognizes that we're, all, we're both bound up in the same fate and that we'll go there together hand in hand. Um, so you need to take care of yourself, which is to say we need to take care of each other, which is to say like we need to pursue the good in common. Um, but I don't know. Does that spark thoughts for you with respect to how love works? I mean, one of the things that's so beautiful about this novel is, is like I said earlier, is the love between the father and the son, and it is mutual. They often talk about themselves as, you know, the good guys, right? Mm -hmm. There are good guys and there are the bad guys. And the son is like constantly wanting to be reassured, like we're the good guys, right? It is difficult to see what it is to be a good guy in such a world, that is to say, a world in which helping other people is a deeply problematic endeavor. Every person is a potential cannibal or someone ready to take all of your things and let you die. So he's constantly wanting to be reassured that, you know, we're really the good guys, right? And there's this, yes, we're the good guys, we're keeping the fire going. They don't really say what this fire is. Um, but it, but it has to be love and hope, right? Um, it can't go out. And, and, and if the fire is love, then it is this kind of burning desire in, in the human person for the good. That, that part of the struggle of being a person living in this world is to retain some sense of, what, of the difference between good and evil and to hold fast to the good, you know, but, but I have to keep going down the road and I have to convince my son that it's, that it's worth it. And so, yeah, I think this flame that they're trying to keep going is this desire to find what remains that's good and hold on to it. I think too, like, um, the image of fire is, is also rich in ambivalence because on the one hand, it's the thing that wrought the destruction uh, in which they are presently wandering. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it remains a symbol of life, uh, you know, in as much as it gives light and heat. They're constantly, you know, moving from fire to fire, uh, mm -hmm. building fires to kind of stay warm, to thaw out, to dry out, um, even just to draw strength to endeavor again the next day. And, you know, Fire, you know, fire is an image both of destruction, but also of vitality. And I think that um, you can see, you can see in that a kind of, you know, an image for for love. You know, just to, just because love can be abused or love can be destructive, does not mean that it ought to be despaired of. Rather, it ought to be purified of its excesses and deficiencies. Uh, and we should redouble our efforts to love well. Uh, and so, this sense of, you know, carrying the fire um, as a hallmark of the good guys, a fire that's, he, he says at the end is something that's interior. The fire is in you. Um, I think is yeah, it's just, it, it does signal how, how very potent, how very vital. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, how very destructive love can be, but, but on the other, how very excellent it makes life uh, when it is, when it is what gives shape or animates our efforts. Um, yeah. 
Yes, I for which reason I think it's it's an excellent image. He also uses the image of like carrying the fire at the end of No Country for Old Men when um the 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 sheriff is trying to make sense of all the destruction that's been wrought and this notion of like carrying the torch up into the mountains is also used. So that's one that he likes. In your um notes that you sent to me, you say that the boy is an icon of hope. Why do you say that? I say that in part because of how people look at him. Everyone's astonished that he is a boy. So this this is a place where life has gone out. Uh, it's like children of men. Yeah. You know? It's it's kind of similar in that that um, part of the death of the world is its sterility. But that you would see a young child, you know, like he was in utero when the great conflagration happened. So he's about as young as they come. And uh, people are just astonished by this fact. And they find it very troubling. One man whom they meet, uh, an old man along the way who's at death's door, thinks he's a god of sorts or, or says, you know, he could be thought to be a god of sorts. And that um, when they encounter, when he, when the boy encounters the final party that he'll join at the end of the novel, he asks if they have children, because that for him is a symbol of, again, a group to whom he can entrust himself. While the world has grown old and weary, you know um, where life is or where hope is or where love is by the presence of children. Um, And again, you know, like youths are hopeful, uh, perhaps in part because of their naivete and immaturity, but also because they look at life well. Um, they are young, they are childlike at heart in a way that affords them a greater access to what older souls have grown tired of seeing, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, simple stuff like that. Do you think that the love that the man has for the boy is supposed to be an exemplar of what love is supposed to be like? Um. Do I think that I think that it's supposed to be excellent, and in as in as much as it's excellent, it's it's imitable. So I suppose so, yeah. Because um, because even though this situation is sui generis, it's nothing that please God will ever actually have to encounter. You see, because of the starkness, it brings into relief those elements of love which are most beautiful. So it's sacrificial character, for instance. Um, the the man never grumbles at the boy even when he drops the pistol on the beach or even when he forgets to turn off the valve on the stove and it leaks gas and they don't have hot food for another, you know, two and a half weeks. Um, Whenever the boy or like when the boy wanders off on his own without telling him or just, you know, proves kind of silly. um, The father is incredibly patient. There's no stern word or rebuke. He always trains his efforts on consoling the boy who knows because he knows the boy will be greatly distressed by his mistake or by his offense. And I think that's like, it's, that's a really beautiful thing. When you see it in, in couples who do this well or in good friends, um, there's very little in the way of rebuke because uh, people anticipate how their faults actually wound others. And then they are horrified by them. And they often need consoling to just simply to say like, don't worry about it as much as you are presently worrying about it because I interpreted it in a way that was generous and, you know, think no more of it. Um, so rather like, you know, in a world where we're surrounded by people who insist on their rights, um, and are constantly looking to exact from another exactly what he or she is owed. It's very beautiful to see two people who are generous and who kind of anticipate each other's needs in a way. Um, and in so doing, you know, like they, they transcend justice and move into a a kind of region of charity, which is again, focused on the good, uh, and trained on each other in a way that's not overly absorbed in the particular goods of each, but rather calls each other Mm -hmm. onto Yeah, on the way. Uh, They're supposed to be together on the way. So, yes, I think so.
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like, I think that the apocalyptic scenario in the novel is just a device that is very useful um, in revealing a truth about us, about the human condition um, that actually is present now, right? Um, and that is to say that actually most of us don't know where we're going. We don't know what reason we have to stay on the road. So the, the father is forced to confront what reason he has to hope. Um, he's, he's forced to confront um, the question, what matters to him? But, and, and it's the circumstances that force it on him, right? Like, you know, the question of suicide is forced on him. Um, what reason do I have to go on? But I think the reality is that all of us do face these questions, whether we bother to ask them or not. Like, where am I going? What's the point? And what can I hope? What should I love? So I, th I think that the novel is sort of brilliant um, without telling you why or how, <laughs> right? Like it forces you as a reader to think about these things, which I think is important and, and good for people to think about you know, what reasons they have to hope or to stay on the road as it were and, and where the hell are you going? But I but I don't I, I guess I just don't think that the characters are really at the end of the day all that different from us. <laughs> it's just that, you know, they're in these extreme circumstances that make these questions like really unavoidable, whereas we spend most of our lives distracting ourselves from having to to answer them and they don't have that luxury. Um Suppose that someone listens to this podcast and they read The Road and then they're like, yes, Cormac McCarthy is great. What other Cormac McCarthy would you point? I would say No Country for Old Men and All the Pretty Horses. Okay, good. What would you say? I don't know. I'm like a bad person to come to for reading advice because I'm going to give you way too much and then you're just not going to read any of it. I'll be like, read it all. Do you think that All the Pretty Horses is the best of the Border Trilogy? When people ask me like, which happens to me all the time. People ask me like, what's the best question? And I just mm. say a bunch of incoherent things. And then I'm like, I resent this question. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, think, I think all the pretty horses is incredible. I think the crossing is good. And I think that uh, cities of the plane is excellent. So I think, I think he starts out strongest. And then I think, I just, I think the John Grady Cole is an incredible character. And I think, the Border Trilogy is as good as the presence of John Grady Cole. I just don't like Billy Parham nearly as much. And I realize that's, you know, whatever. That's a bad way to read a book. It's like, I just don't like him that much. But, um, uh, I think that's fine, actually. Okay. I mean, this is a very... So I'm not a literary critic. I'm not going to pretend to be a literary critic. Um, you know, this is just a podcast that is about literature and a, and a sort of... Um, semi-naive sort of way. It's like, why, why why, should people read this? This is really good. Um, we needn't really be sophisticated about it. Um, yeah, so you are at the Dominican House of Studies, and I know that, um, so some of my listeners will know what that is, and, and, and a lot of them won't, um, because hopefully I have a very diverse <laughs> bunch of listeners. Um, so why don't you tell me like what you're up to at the Dominican House of Studies? Totes. So I work for the Thomistic Institute, which is a research institute here, and uh, we have campus chapters. So students at, at different universities can organize and then be recognized as a chapter of the Thomistic Institute. There's one at USC. Uh, the faculty chair is, wait, what's her name again? Oh, right. 
She's Dr. a weird Jen Frey. Whoa. Um, so that's the big thing. That's the main work of the Institute is to host lectures and uh, retreats, conferences, things like that on different university campuses. And then this fall, we just started a program called Aquinas 101, which is an online video series. So all told, it'll be about 85 to 90 videos. They come out twice a week. So at this point, there's maybe like 15 or 20 of them available. How and long uh, an average video? An average video is about three to five minutes. Okay, so and not bad. Not bad. Yeah, it's in the wheelhouse. It's something that's very doable. You can you can watch it with your morning coffee. And uh, the point of the series is to introduce you to St. Thomas. So who is St. Thomas? Why is he important? And then it walks you through the basics of his philosophy. And then it takes you by the hand and uh, gives you a tour of the Summa Theologiae, touching on the big concepts, the big distinctions, helping you with his vocabulary, his grammar, you know, the genre of his writing. And then with, with, with each video, you can also listen to a, a course listening, like a little podcast curated for it and some reading. So if you go to Aquinas101.com, you can enroll. It's free. And then you just get an email every Tuesday and Thursday with, uh, with what you need. Or you can scope it just on YouTube or on the, uh, the website itself. So that is sweet. Um, and then another thing that we're doing here at the House of Studies is uh, a handful of men just started a podcast maybe about three months ago called Godsplaining. And um, it's just a, it's a kind of miscellany. So philosophy, theology, arts, literature, culture, just 30 minute conversations about things that um, folks typically find interesting from a, uh, from a theological perspective. So the tagline being contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Um, so yeah, I think that's something else that folks might like. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Dig. Thanks for having me. Listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can now follow us on Twitter at Eudaimonia Pod, or you can check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, that's Eudaimonia Pod, E U D A I M O N I A P O D. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please give us a positive review, either on iTunes or subscribe to our feed. Without your online support, it is difficult to keep the podcast going, so be sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Do you have suggestions or recommendations for the podcast? Please let me know. I really love to hear from you, and I'm definitely open to requests, which you can leave on our Facebook page, or you can send me a direct message on Twitter, where my handle is at Udime. Pod. Again, that's at Eudaimonia Pod, E U D A I M O N I A P O D. Until next time.